Welcome back, everybody, as we continue here on Sports Talk. 20 past the hour. Excited about uh, getting uh, Coach Mark Lowry back with us. He is the head coach, technical director of El Paso Locomotive FC. Locomotive have a big match uh, coming up, and that's going to be tomorrow night against New Mexico United. And, uh, Coach, I appreciate you joining us uh, again on the show. We're trying to give our listeners a chance to hear you uh, a day or two before uh, each match just to get the uh, latest. Uh, but, obviously, you got to be excited since the last time we spoke to you, which was last Thursday. You opened up uh, the season at home. You have a big one to nil win. And uh, those three valuable points, uh, a great way to kick things off and start it up again. Yeah, hey Steve, uh, it's good to be back. And yeah, with those three points in the bag on the board, it feels a lot better, you know. Absolutely, no doubt about it. And and it's hard because um, if you watch the game, the first forty-five to the second forty-five, it seemed probably exactly like you talked about—a club that had to get the rust off a little bit because you're playing your first full match, and it seemed also like a, a much different club in the uh, second half very much attack driven and it was you were on the offense you were getting quality shots on net you broke through late so it you're right it probably it's just going to take a little time you can't expect people to be in you know be in mid-season form after a, a four-month layover yeah and that's it it's about keeping it in perspective um and we spoke at half time like you know guys the they were disappointed at halftime. They obviously felt like they weren't performing like they should. But I said, guys, I mean, what did we expect? We haven't played a game for, for four months. And it's hot. And it's a different environment now without the fans in there. So once we adjusted and came out in the second half, we were all guns blazing. And i I got to be honest, the, the second 45 minutes might be the most enjoyable 45 minutes of football I've watched us play. I mean, we were just going at it and... and the 1-0 victory probably really flattens RGV, actually. I think it probably deserves more of a 3-4-0 based on the stats and, 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 and watching the game back and how we like to we're on the front foot for, for the whole of the half. No doubt about it. And and I'm happy you talked about just how happy and enjoy and you know you were enjoying watching this team play because once again um, this is just the first match and and that's and you're right it could have been a lot worse so uh, you know you never want to come away without any points and lose a match but you really wonder if uh, if if Rio Grande Valley probably thought it was a moral victory to just lose one to nil and not three or four absolutely because it could have easily been three or four zero and I think. Later on in the year, if we if we keep replicating those type of performances, once the rust really falls off and wears off us, and and we hit that stride and that rhythm, I think you see those those chances we create and those shots we had on goal actually going in. Once we kind of hit that mid season type form, no doubt. Um, tell me this: How surreal was it for you playing without the crowd? And I know that there was some fan noise piped in, not very loud, but still there, it was there. Um, was it noticeable for you, or did you feel as if there was really just uh, the, the voice of the, of the players communicating, and that was it? Yeah, I'll be honest. For us, the fan noise wasn't noticeable at all. Um, like that, it wasn't super loud. But once we kind of get down to the field and we get in that zone, it's really hard to hear anything that's going on outside of our little bubble, I guess. Um, so I think that was part of the adjustment period as well, the first 45, you know, getting acclimated to that type of environment, um, you know, that becoming more of the, the, the norm as opposed to having the fans and the atmosphere and the build-up. So I think it took us a few minutes to, to get used to that as well, just the quietness of, of the place and, and being able to just to hear all the players and, and ourselves took a was, was a different feel, but I think in the second half, I don't think we had that problem. I think in the second half, we created so much energy and, and, and kind of momentum ourselves on the field that, that it really kind of took the place of, of you know, the atmosphere that, that the fans can create. And that was something we spoke about. It's the eighth notch, you're not going to be there to, to sing and scream and shout and cheer us on. We've got to find a way to create that ourselves. And I think in the second half, the guys did that. Do you think that the reason the two halves were so different was because uh, the players were essentially just trying to to get themselves get get into that flow during the first forty five, and you just you can't expect a team to come out flying, uh, you know, with with so so much time off. Yeah, one hundred percent. I uh, I know I made a couple of subs at halftime, and those were premeditated. Those were not tactical. There was always the plan for 
for Yuma to play 45 and then Rich to play the second 45 and for Chiro to play the first 45 and Mishap to play the second. So the subs I made had nothing to do with the performance. They were always going to happen. So I, the, the, the subs itself, the personal itself for me didn't change the game. I think we had a, a good lineup in the first half and a good lineup in the second half. I just think it was a case of just getting that first 45 out of the way, you know, and, and making a couple of mistakes and getting settled again and kind of dusting things down a little bit and, and, and getting used to the field and the surface. You know, we haven't, we haven't played at, 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 on that field for months either, and we haven't trained on that field for months. So there's a different feel to the surface. The ball moves a little bit quicker out there, and, and, and there was a few of those adjustments that we need to make and just getting, kind of getting used to that. So I think that was 100% the reason in the, in the, the different kind of the difference in quality of the two halves was 100% that. It wasn't the subs I made. I know a few people have spoke about the subs being game-changed, and yeah, the subs came on and did a phenomenal job, but I, I, I think whoever I would have bought on in those moments would have come into the game and felt good because the game the game changed in the second half, but it was more us just, just getting accustomed to being out there again. At the same time, you got to love the fact that at least this season, the field is completely uh, soccer and, and not even worrying about any style of baseball because, you know, there hasn't been any and there won't be any. So essentially, you probably will be dealing with perfectly manicured grass on the pitch. And when your uh, football team comes out there, you know that it's about as close as you're ever going to get to having your own uh, stadium. Yeah, and I actually spoke to the ground staff about that today. And, and funnily enough, that the the, the diamond that the new turf we put in was probably at its worst, in, you know, on Saturday. And the longer it stays down, just the more natural it'll start to feel. You know, they the work out the kinks in the turf and it starts to kind of just blend in with the outfield a little bit. So I think, and, and they told me that as every game goes on, we'll see it get even better and better, you know, because it's difficult sometimes when, you know, they've just laid it. It takes a couple of days for that just to yeah. settle. Um, so it'll actually get better as these games go on. The fact it can stay down now for a couple of weeks and not having to come up um, like it used to. So, so I think we'll see a better field as the weeks go on as well. That's a great point. You've never had this. You've always played with with a uh, you know with grass that once the, that match is over, they're immediately getting rid of it and getting the infield going again, so they can have baseball. But now you'll finally have that opportunity. You said it to to keep the grass in, grow it, and and I'm curious. I mean, we've we've all wondered, you know, that there wouldn't be any baseball, but I guess it wasn't until it became official that they were that the grounds crew was able able to fully implement the uh, the turf and 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 uh, and grow it the right way is that correct yeah that's correct and and you know they do a great job you know usually if the grass was the, the the turf they laid it down on a thursday we played on the saturday and saturday night they spent into the early hours you know getting that back up because in the two hours would have a homestand either starting sunday or monday or tuesday and getting the baseball field ready and, and you know and they don't have to do that now you know there's not that quick turnaround they can actually leave that turf in a little bit and, and work with it and put the chemicals into it and cut it how they want and start to manicure it a little bit. So it, it's not just in and out in a couple of days. So I think we'll see a better field tomorrow. And I think we'll see an in better field next Friday when New Mexico return. And, and, you know, we're fortunate to have that. Obviously very unfortunate that two hours aren't playing baseball this year, but I think the, the, the one, if there's a blessing to it is that we can keep that down and, and, and it should improve as the weeks go on. Mark Lowry, head coach, technical director, El Paso Locomotive FC, joining us here uh, on Sports Talk as we continue. Who graded out the highest uh, from your uh, from your matchup on Saturday? Uh, you know, there was there was some really good performance. I loved I love what Nick Ross and Dylan did in there in in the kind of attacking midfield of the field areas. I think um, Aaron had a really good game. You know, provided us a lot of energy. Um, you know, in in terms of that, and and I think you'll see this season where. The style of play this year, the evolution of it is, is it's more of, 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 of the collective. And you saw with our attacking, every, I mean, even the goal, it was four or five players involved in the goal, right? Yeah, Dylan put the finishing touch to it, but it was the movement of the three, four attacking players together in coordination with each other really opened that space up for Dylan. And that's what we're trying to get at this year. So I thought the attacking guys did really well. Obviously, the back four... The defenders, you know, restricted RGV to maybe one shot on goal, if that. So 
I thought it was a collectively a really great performance. But I thought, you know, Nick, Dylan, and Aaron provided the, the you know a lot of energy and a lot of intensity to our game, and that's really the foundation of who we are this year. We want to play with a lot of intensity all the time. You're so strong, though, in that back four. I mean, you can look at and, yeah. and say that that's probably a, a, as good a group as, as we're going to see. And the exciting thing is we still have 14 matches left in the season. Absolutely. I, I think the, the the defense that we have is arguably the best in the league. And it, it showed last year with our defensive record, you know, um, was, was very good. And, and as he said to the guys a couple of days ago, I said, this is going to go unnoticed because of the gap in games, but that two clean sheets in a row now. You know, we went to Orange County first game of the season, uh, and then we, we come here, and four months later, we should RGV down. That's two clean sheets in a row, which is never easy. You know, at any level of the game in any country, keeping clean sheets is, is typically very hard. And we just kept two in a row. We want to make it three tomorrow. We're going to come back more with Coach Lowry, including his thoughts on the, the latest addition for El Paso Locomotive FC. But before we do that, let's go to Adrian and get this bottom of the hour Sports Center update. Thank you, Adrian, Head Coach Technical Director of El Paso Locomotive FC, Mark Lowry, with us uh, here on Sports Talk. We've heard the name Leandro Carrillo for a while now. It's, he was released uh, back in June. Rumors were flying that he was going to stick around the borderland and and, and join up with uh, the locomotive. And then we get the news today. And, and it seems like this is such a perfect fit in a lot of ways. Once it was official, a ton of uh, soccer fans that have followed Carrillo's career, uh, very excited about what he can bring to your club. Yeah, we're excited to have Leandro and Adair Borelli also, you know, came across last mm-hmm. week from FC Juarez also. And, you know, one thing that, that we're excited about is just, just how the quality of human beings we're bringing in. And, and that was one thing that really struck me in the initial conversation with both these guys, the humility of them, the professionalism that they're bringing in. And, and just their quality guys, their leadership skills and the experience they have. You know, playing for five years at FC Juarez and, and, and getting all those appearances in and Leandro scoring all those goals, it's, it's going to be enjoyable to, to, to see them fit into this group, um, to fit into this style of play. And, and they're, they're excited about it. You know, they're just, just as excited as we are for this new, new venture in their careers. How's your Spanish coming along? It's good at times. <laughs> Some days are better than others. But that's, that's not that these two speak good English. It's, it's, it was, it was, a great conversation I had with them, you know, over Zoom, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and, and their English was, was was good, which was a massive plus for us. I mean, we have, obviously I can speak a little bit. We've got Spanish speakers on staff. And sure. and Gabe Zaponi, my sports performance director, actually Brazilian. And, and, and Korea is Brazilian as well. So they speak the Portuguese. So it made a lot of sense when we started looking at it, you know, in a, in a, in a deeper level. We were like, you know, there's, there's a lot of boxes being checked here and, and it just made perfect sense to bring them both in. No doubt. Now, uh, Carrillo is 34 years of age, and he's a veteran, mm-hmm. but he can absolutely put the ball in the back of the net. And at times, it seemed like last year, Kisaveta was that guy. He had that amazing mm-hmm. run. And now you get somebody that, that, that truly is a finisher. And I think the key is going to be how you figure out the best way to utilize him, especially initially knowing that he hasn't played uh, much yep. over the last season and, and try to work him into your rotation. Yeah, and that's the beautiful thing about it. You know, he's a finisher, a natural finisher, and, and they're hard to find. So, someone with his goal-scoring record, you know, doesn't just, you know, appear out of nowhere. Um, so we're lucky to have that. And, and knowing that we have that in our arsenal makes us very dangerous. And, and you know, like you, you, you said he's 34. You know, we play a very high-energy, high-dynamic, a lot of running. You know, that's kind of what we're about. So, so you know, there's going to be some adaptation for him. But also, you, know, you can use guys, particularly in the early stage, like he hasn't played for a long time. You know, his fitness levels are not going to be perfect. But, you know, when you're a goal scorer, you can come on for five minutes and score a goal and win a game for the team. That's the beauty of it. So, we're going to have lots of options for him, lots of ideas to, to utilize him and, and, and bring him in and, 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 and fit him into our style of play. And he'll be a great player for us over the next, you know, this year and into next year as well. How about uh, for Borelli? How do you expect to utilize him uh, starting uh, tomorrow night against New Mexico United? Well, yeah, I mean, neither, you know, Borelli doesn't have his visa yet. Neither have their visas. So they're not able to play okay. right now. Um, so that, that's still going to be another three, four weeks away before they're, 
you know, allowed to be on the roster. Um, you know, all this is pending the visas, which, you know, just takes time. Um, but Brelli's a left back. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a position that, you know, we have, we have a wonderful left back in Andrew Fox. Um, I was never looking at bringing in another left back to replace Andrew. It was a case of bringing in a left back to compete with Andrew and, and make that the depth of that position a little bit stronger. Um, so it was something that I had on my radar actually for the coming off season, you know, going into 2021, improving the depth of that position. Um, I actually see Moses McKinday's future more as a central defender. You know, Moses played left back for us in the past when Andrew Fox couldn't. Um, so I see, I have a different plan for Moses. So I wanted to, I want to bring the left back in. And I, like I said, I had it, I had it on my mind to do it in this coming off season, but you know, Things changed when Borelli was 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 bought in front of us, and and we were told that he was available. We looked at him once again; it just made a lot of sense because it's a position that I wanted to add more quality depth to, and he'll definitely do that. He'll come in, he'll compete with Andrew, which makes us a stronger team. This question comes in from the Real AP on Twitter. He wants to know with Carillo up top, how much more goals do you expect to get? It's an impossible question to answer. I think <laughs> that's a tough one. Um, the hardest thing to do in soccer is score goals. And, you know, Carrillo has a skill set. Um, we're going to have to find a way to fit that skill set into what we do because, you know, you look at someone like Leandro, who's six foot two, and he's very good in the air. He's very good with his head. You know, we're not going to start just smashing balls up to him. That's not who we are. So we've got to find a way to use his skill set, but also not change who we are as a team because we're a passing team. You know, we build our possession. We, we, we move it forward methodically, and, and I've got some ideas to do that. You know, I think he'll strike up a good relationship with our other attacking players, and, and that'll be the key, really, It's finding those partnerships up there. You know, we, um, we want to play with two forwards this season, um, and right now we have four of them, including Leandro. Leandro, Gomez, um, Marius Lomas, and Omar Salgado. So it's finding the right balance in those partnerships, you know, which two work well together and kind of then playing off each other. So I think... All those things will come into, but you know, definitely going to, to you know, twenty twenty one once once he gets fit and, and, and fully adapts to us. I see Korea scoring. You know, he should be adding double figures. You know, in terms of ten plus goals to the team. You know, I think that would be that would be a, a good expectation going into twenty twenty one. We had a great question for you on Thursday, and I didn't get it uh, asked in time, but we had one of our listeners want to know your thoughts on playing the season uh, in your venue and and other uh, soccer stadiums versus a bubble situation like what uh, MLS is doing in Orlando. Um, 100% I prefer our situation. Um, And things things can change. I think we said the other other day, this is an ever-changing world at the moment, and one week it looks okay, and the next week it's disastrous. But right now, teams seem to be doing a good job at playing in their own venues. The league is not having issues with outbreaks of cases, and teams seem to be doing a good job. And then you, you know, MLS decided to go into the bubble, and and because they thought that was the best way. And you're kind of looking at it and teams are dropping out, and you know, some teams are having up to ten cases, and and they're going through issues now. Just because I haven't heard that through the USL doesn't mean it hasn't happened, but. We haven't heard of any. I think mm-hmm. teams seem to be doing okay after you know the first week. And if it can continue like that, and clubs can be responsible and not cut corners, I, I think we can get through the full season, and, and and everybody can get through the full season and kind of play in the home venues, and people can live at home. And I think that's probably the safest way to do it. I, I think guys being at home is the safest safest environment for them and then things are closed down they can't really go anywhere it's, it's i i believe what we're trying to do as a club and what the usl is trying to do is probably the the safest and best way to get through a, a solid season of games coach give me your thoughts on united for tomorrow night they uh went ahead and, and beat colorado springs two to one over the weekend they lost to austin prior to the stoppage back on mm-hmm. march the 7th this is your first uh, meeting against a team in Group C, your group. So yep. your two matches thus far have come outside of the group. Now you're going to start a long swing of uh, games inside Group C beginning tomorrow. Yeah, they're a tough team. They're always a tough team to play against. They, um, they're they pretty direct with what they do. They get the ball forward into Sandoval. You know, he's kind of a big target forward that they have. And 
and they get a lot of runners running forward off him, so they can cause problems. You know, they, they can be a very dangerous team on their day. Um, we've experienced that before. We've witnessed it before. So we know what we're going up against. We're, we're prepared for it. We're ready for it. But, we you know, we believe that we can also cause them a lot of problems, frankly, and they should be very wary of what we can do. Um, you know, it's, it's always an extra edge to the game when New Mexico come to town. You know, there's the... There's, there's a rivalry just because of the location of the two teams. There's a, there's a closeness to it. So there's an edge there, and, and we want to get on the board in this, in this rivalry. We want to make sure we put three points on the board to help us in, in the group play and, and our overall tally of points. I think it's going to be a terrific matchup. Uh, it's mm-hmm. going to be physical, a lot of great action, mm-hmm. um, and, and it's going to be a good test. You know, we talked about uh, your back four and just how good they are, and I'm looking forward to seeing them go up tomorrow against New Mexico and, and watching what should be uh, really a, a terrific, uh, terrific football game. It should be. It should be an entertaining game, and they usually are when we play New Mexico. You know, the 2-2 here last season was a great game You know, for the neutral, and I expect another good game tomorrow. Coach, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us, and we'll look forward to having you back here uh, in a couple of weeks as we get you ready for your next big match. Thanks, Steve. Take care. Mark Lowry, folks, joining us as Coach's comments on Sports Talk, 43 past the hour. When we come back, more of your calls, more of your comments. But first, Stephanie Valle, ABC 7 News, and then Charlie One on 600 ESPN El Paso. Sports Talk is underway. Welcome back, everybody. Excited about uh, what we are going to start today for the next couple of weeks. And that is visit with UTEP football head coach Dana Dimmel, who now is just a few weeks away from resuming training and starting the preparation for the 2020 college football season. Coach, good to have you back on the show. How are you? Cap, I'm doing good, buddy. How are you? Doing fine, thank you. Have you had a chance to, to get any vacation this uh, this summer at all? I had quite a vacation um, this uh, weekend. It's funny that you ask. I drove 20 hours up to um, Iowa and spent four, uh, 61 hours in Iowa at a Memorial Golf Tournament for my father-in-law and, uh, and then flew back. So... Um, yeah, so I spent as much time getting up there almost as what I got to spend. So that was my vacation, and I don't see any in the foreseeable future. <laughs> Do you recommend a 20-hour drive to Iowa if you've never done it before? Uh, that's not something that uh, is recommended, especially on your vacation, you know, especially on the very few days that we have right now as we narrow down into, you know, because customarily you will have, you know, the July is a month for – football coaches to have a little bit of time off, but this July uh, has been quite a bit different. And really, since I got here, I haven't taken much time off. I think I took five days total all last year, you know, all last summer. So this year, a lot of stuff going on right now, getting ourselves ready. As you mentioned, you know, uh, Thursday, we resume workouts, Thursday morning. So really looking forward to that. Got 80-plus players back. Um, and ready to start working out on Thursday morning. I'm excited about that, too. Now, I know that even before COVID, the Camp Riodoso was not going to happen this year. Um, and obviously, with the news of the pandemic, uh, you know, we found out uh, a few weeks back officially that Camp Riodoso wasn't going to happen. Are, are there still plans to try to bring that back at some point in time? You know, every year, Cap, we're going to evaluate. I'm, I want to say this is that we really, really enjoyed the experience uh, of Rio Dosa. The people up there were unbelievable. The players had a great time uh, up there. You know, it was it had a lot of positives to it. And so next year, as we go into next season, we'll definitely evaluate again, you know, where we are. And, of course, we'll use that eval uh, comp with how, this camp goes, you know, and, and uh, if this camp is a normal camp, then we'll comp and say, okay, here's what camp by not using Rio Dosa looks like, and is it something that we think is important for us to go to go back to? 
Do you feel that if you're going to do Riadoso, you need to do it closer to 10 days or, or, or longer versus just seven like you did last year? Great question. No, I don't. And that is feedback from the players. The players have been really pleased with as we've shortened it. Uh, you know, the first year we shortened it to 10, and then the second year we shortened it to 7. Uh, they were really they, – they thought that was good. They, they don't want to be out of their normal living environments for that long of a period of time. They just feel like it throws them into a loop. Uh, this is getting a lot of feedback from them. that It just kind of throws them off schedule. And um, and then it's hard for them, and then they're spending time getting uh, acclimatized to the uh, normal uh, schedule again, you know, a normal lifestyle. So from, from the feedback we have got from them, Steve, it's been the shorter, the better, but I would not do it for any less than a week. I understand. Now, in all your years of coaching college football, you've never quite experienced anything like what you are right now. And I'm sure the most difficult part is currently you still have a 12-game schedule. A lot of teams don't have that luxury anymore. And we'll probably know in a couple of weeks if this will stay a 12-game schedule. So when you take the amount of uncertainty that we have in the college football world with a couple of the Power Fives and couple that with everything else we're dealing with right now, you you try to keep the normalcy as much as possible, but I'm sure for you it's so uh, fluid it could change uh, at the drop of a hat. Yeah, and some of it's not in our control, you know, and so you learn that as a football coach that's been doing it, just as you mentioned, for as long as uh, we've been doing it, is that some things are not in your control. And if you, so obviously you can't stress over those things. The things that we can control is what we do in our day-to-day activities, and that's prepare ourselves as if we're 100% going to play a football season. And that's what our guys are focused on doing in order to be prepared to the highest level we can be prepared, we have to do that. And uh, as you said, you know, if we lose some non-conference games, that won't be in our control. And we're hoping that that does not happen because, as we all know, uh, those are very pivotal uh, to our program. You know, obviously the Texas Tech home opener is just a gigantic game that we are expecting a sellout for. Uh, Almost certain we were going to get a sellout for. And then, of course, the Texas game is one that our players really, really look forward to, uh, as well as our fans, as well as our um, uh, financial uh, means. We, we need it, you know. So that, those are big ball games for us. So we're hoping that uh, the Big 12 continues to play their non-conference games. UTEP head football coach Dana Dimmel with us live as we continue on Sports Talk. All right, so here's what we're going to do with this. We've told our listeners, and we've talked about this a little bit off air. We are going to take each day and go position by position with your team and, and, and give give a good, strong indication of what, uh, you know, what n- names and faces players are going to be able to contribute at those spots this year. Now, I thought a lot about this, and I think it'd be fun if – you surprise us each day with a position that we can talk about. So this way, we have zero preparation going into the interview. We wait until you... Uh, then you know we'll we'll give us the position you want to cover and we'll go right into it. So it's kind of fun that way because uh, for us we never know what position's coming. Uh, it could be anything. Now it's up to you if you want to keep it on the same side of the ball for one week and then shift it over the next week, and, and that's totally fine. If you want to make it a complete grab bag and go back and forth. Whatever you want to do, but I think it'd be kind of fun for us and for our listeners to have you surprise us each day with the position that we're going to get a chance to talk about. So what would you like to uh, start with here today, Coach? Okay, great. And as as you know, and just for everybody listening out there, this is unrehearsed, all right? We didn't have it. We didn't talk about doing it this way, and I think it's great. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw it back at you, Cap, and say, what do you think... Our strongest position is going in. I have it in my mind right now. What do you think our strongest position on our football team is going into the 2020 season? And that's the position I'll start with. Okay. If I had to guess on that, I'd go with running back. You nailed it. That's exactly what I was thinking. Very good. Yep. So you got an A for day one quiz. Yep. 
Thank God so, I get an, I, you know, <laughs> haven't had an A on anything in a while, Coach, so I appreciate that. I really do. Yeah, you nailed it. Good job. Good, Good start. Good. So well, um, Now let's do it know, because you're, you're deep. Okay, you're very, good. very deep at running back heading into this season. Very deep at running back. Great problem to have. And with that being said, we need to utilize our running back position in various ways. The positive part of that is that our offensive package is so extensive through multiple, multiple years of, of the system, you know, being uh, put in. And so we, and we know how to coach it. You know, a lot of people want to put it in and not really know how to coach it. We can, so, so a big thing is let's get the ball with these guys, not only handing the ball off to them, but throwing the ball to them out of the backfield and or getting into some no-backs offense and getting the ball to them in route running. So it starts off, you know, and I'm not going to go in any particular order, uh, you know, the bell cow right now coming back is Quadrez Wadley, uh, who, you know, being injured last year, uh, was had never used his red shirt season, and so he'll come back. I thought Q did a really nice job for us two years ago. I think he really has a big it factor for what he does. He brings a lot to the table that way. He's kind of a slashing runner. And the neat sidebar on him, Cap, is that he um, – He's taken over Luke Loffenberg's number. And, you know, we've done that tribute of whoever is the most uh, one that uh, depicts all the characteristics that Luke Loffenberg depicted in his lifestyle and what he brought to a team as a teammate. We're going to give the jersey number two. And so Quadrez is going to change from number four to number two this year. So that kind of shows you a lot about what we think about him. And he wanted to do it as well, a lot what he thought about Luke, and he represents everything that UTEP fans would want out of a football player and a student athlete. But then as we go to the next spot, you know, somebody, everybody, all El Paso is so excited about is Dion Hankins. And Dion is a wonderful, wonderful image for UTEP football off the field. And he's such, he's up to 218 pounds. And he doesn't have any fat on his body. And so when you take the combination of 218 pounds and no body fat, uh, when he runs by you, it sounds like a freight train going by you. You just hear, oh, oh, oh. You know, he's just so strong and so powerful. And uh, I am just thinking it's going to be a really, really hard time for people to tackle him. And so glad that we redshirted him so he's got four more years to play. Uh, in the blue and orange. So I'm excited about him and, and, and playing for UTEP and, and wearing the school colors and, and just can't wait to watch him go. Um, you know, after him, Josh Fields is another local product. Josh has got uh, has had some 150-yard rushing games in his career here, and uh, he's getting bigger, stronger every day. I'm looking forward to watching Josh. He brings so much to the table. Uh to our offense as well has got a different running style than those other two. Uh, Q's a slasher, Dion's a power runner with good speed, and Josh is one of those real quick-footed runners that, that brings so much to the table. And now we complement that with Ronnie Awat, who's probably one of our top four to five most explosive athletes on our football team who got injured in fall camp just like Quadrez did last year. And he's got a chance to really, really do some neat things at the running back spot as well. And so there's a great athlete there. And then another local product, Ray Flores, who has earned a scholarship, walked onto our program, earned a scholarship, and helps us uh, in so many ways on special teams. But he's a good ball catcher, a good route runner, and, and very effective with the football in his hand and a good blocker without the football in his hands. So very, very well-rounded. And then... To add that, add to the arsenal, you got Willie Eldridge, who comes into our program as one of our most recruits we're most excited about out of, out of northern Northwest Houston. Really, really good athlete, uh, powerful, explosive, and Willie's going to be a bright star in our future as well. And then Jalen Joseph, a player, another player from the area that had walked on for us. But we watched Jalen play, and we thought at Andrus, and we thought, boy, Jalen's got a chance to be a Division One running back, and he redshirted last year. And so there are seven names right there, Cap, that are guys that uh, can do so much for us in the future. And um, the great part about all that is, one, 
uh, only one, maybe two, will leave our program next year, and the other ones will all be back for another season at least. So some good young no, no doubt. talent and some good future talent for our program. Now, Wadley is a senior along with Fields, correct? So those are the correct. two that most likely, um, you know, barring unforeseen circumstances, would this would be their this would be their final year of eligibility playing for the minors. Correct. But and Josh has a red shirt year, you know. Josh Fields does wow. have a red shirt year. He never red shirt and so as a head coach you're always using that, you know, you have that if we need it, you know, and if and if uh you know, that's something that he decides he might want to do or if he gets hurt, you know, early in the season, uh, he's got that in his in his tool shed to use. And so that's why I said we could lose one, maybe two uh, of them at the most. Now, you've definitely um, intrigued the two of us. And I know Adrian's got a question. I've got some things for you, but we're up at a break. Can you come back and we'll talk more about this with you when we return? I'll be here, ready to go. So will we. More with UTEP head football coach Dana Dimmel as we start the preview going with that deep running back class. But first, here's Charlie Wan with the traffic update at 17 past. Back here on Sports Talk as we continue. UTEP head football coach Dana Dimmel with us right now as we begin our preview today with the running back class. You heard coach talk about uh, the depth of running backs this season. And I wonder, the biggest challenge you're going to have is trying to figure out how to balance it. I'm assuming that uh, with this kind of group, you'd probably prefer running back by committee, although the difficulty there is, you know, you sometimes could have somebody in a groove, and yet you want to stay with them rather than try to complement them with another back. Definitely. You know, definitely going to be interesting, and that's why, uh, you know, it doesn't, put out of the realm of possibility of some split back offense, you know, definitely uh, putting that in to get those guys on the field uh, and lining up in some, you know, 21 with split backs and lining up in some 20 personnel with split backs, which means, you know, two, two split back, two running backs in there, a tight end and two receivers or two running backs and three receivers in the ball game. And, and which has traditionally been a very heavy, passing type of offensive set, you know, uh, you know, a.k.a. Norm Chow, BYU uh, style of offense where you use the two backs in various ways in the passing game, um, which is kind of where the air raid offense fed off of was BYU, Norm Chow, all that. You know, it was kind of where how Mummy got a lot of those passing ideas. So that's another set that we could use uh, in our system as well to get some more of those guys on the field. It really is. And again, tons of possibilities. But you mentioned right now, Wadley, your uh, your lead back. And then obviously everybody's excited about Deion Hankins. How does Q look so far? Just early, uh, you know, indications as he started his workouts and in his return from his injury. Yeah, he's gotten himself in, you know, a much stronger, more physical uh, player. He's pushing 220 pounds. So again, that's a big back. I think his ultimate playing weight will be 216, 217. Uh, you know, I know we talk, that's very detailed, but that's exactly what we get to here as far as what, where we want him to weigh. Um, and uh, I just think he'll be so much uh, more um, uh, used to and, and accustomed to what we're doing in our system and have a much better feel. And plus, we've done a lot of meetings, Cap. There's been so much meeting time with these players uh, through the quarantine and the preparation, you know, Zoom meetings, uh, you know, the maximum amount of m- number we can do every week, which is quite a few. These guys have really expanded their knowledge of the game of football, which you know is really important for us as we try to bring the program on track. Absolutely. Now, I know Adrian's got a question for you as well, kind of on the same subject. So go ahead, Adrian. Coach, uh, catching out of the backfield is such a valuable you know, commodity nowadays among running backs. Who would you say is your best pass catching back? Oh, that's a good, that's a really, that's a really good question. Um, you know, you guys have seen Q make some catches through the years, you know, on some of those wheel routes and trail routes out of the backfield that we've used him on. 
I think he does a really, you know, nice job with that. So I would say right now, if I had to do the top one, it would be Quadrez as our top pass catcher coming out of the backfield. And of course, you know, we're developing Dion's complete skill set as he matures, um, and he'll continue to get better at it. But Q's a senior, and D's just going to be a redshirt freshman, you know, so I think Q's ahead of him, you know, in that stage of the game. Coach, mixing in some veteran returners, mixing in some newcomers like Willie Eldridge, can you compare this depth chart of a running back group to anything that you've seen in the past? <laughs> I haven't had any. I mean, we've been around some big 12 offenses that have been pretty good and really good and been around some great teams, you know, lots and lots of wins, multiple 9, 10, 11 game win seasons. And uh, I don't know if we've ever had a backfield as deep as this. You know, we might have had a back or two that was, you know, Big 12 highlight, you know, 1,000-plus rusher and so on and so forth and had three really good backs. But I don't know if we've ever been able to go, you know, as deep as what we're going with our top guys here, you know, athletically, uh, the four, you know, four uh, or five guys that can really do it and then you throw a freshman like Willie in there, no. To answer that question, I don't know if I've been around this deep uh, of a backfield, really. You know, at Kansas State, we did have some very, very – we had a year where we rotated three really, really good backs, you know, in there. And um, But uh, at the true, at the running back position, I don't think – I think we compare and are a little bit better than even that year. With the talent you have, I think that uh, it would be expected to see at least the running uh, offense, the rushing offense, uh, average over 200 yards a game. You agree? You know, Cap, I don't know if I can say that or not because it's just going to be what people give us, you know. And uh, I feel like you and I talked about this. We should be much, much improved in our run game and much more efficient in our run game. Uh, but the quarterbacks that we have, you know, are, are you know, can throw the ball and, and, and can run the offense in a passing type of mold better than I think we had last year or the previous year. And so these guys might not get as many rushing yards, but they all-purpose yards should be, you know, really what we, what we measure them on. And then the efficiency of their run stats. You know, I think that's the two measurables for this year's backfield just because, you know, of the quarterbacks we have and the way they can spin the ball and and how we're going to, you know, make the offense morph towards that style of, of offense because of our talent set that we have. I think that's important. Now we're going to get to um, quarterbacks, receivers, um, line later on here in the uh, days to come. But there's a lot of fans that are thinking, well, it's the most predictable offense we've ever seen. They just All they do is they run the ball. They don't have any imagination. Everybody knows how to game plan them. They, there, there's no offense. There's no nothing. But you just hinted to something that I think a lot of fans um, you know, have been talking about is having the ability to mix it up to where you can throw the ball or run the ball on each play, and it's not going to be the kind of offense that teams can easily game plan for because suddenly you feel like you have the ability to, to do both and do it well. Sure, yeah. And, you know, we've done it at, at, at places that I've been. We've thrown the ball at a high, high level. You know, Kansas State at one time was known as the most prolific passing offense in the Big, tw- in the big Eight and then, and then into the Big 12. It's just the style of quarterback that we have. You know, as we're, as we're molding our program, it can put a uh, bad light on the offense because there's not anything we could do well. You know what I mean? And at the, you know, as you're going through the initial stages, and so that might put a tone where someone might, you know, get critical of what we're doing. But it's all about execution. And, uh, and, but our knowledge of the passing game and our ability to – to throw the football when we have the talent set has been proven for many years. So we're I think the most exciting thing. Yep. Yep. I, I was going to say, Coach, I think the most exciting thing that 
that you know we we learned today on the running game is not just the depth issues and the fact that you even have a, a red shirt for Josh Fields if you want to use it and he wants to use it, which is obviously a huge weapon for you to to help you for next season. But it's the fact that you don't just have seven running backs that can all do two things well. You've got running backs and each of them have their own style that could do little things differently, and it just gives you that much more flexibility to utilize all of them during certain game situations. Sure, and if those are your best players, then you got to get the ball in their hands. And uh, if they're performing higher at a higher level than some of your receivers might be, then you get the ball to them over over in lieu of getting the ball to the to the receivers. And you do that in the passing game, you know. And so the big thing is to find ways to get the touches to the guys that we need to get the touches to. And it's all about the orchestration of the offense from the quarterback position. You know, it's all about the execution of that. and It's all about the protection of the quarterback from the offensive line play. And we'll get into those positions, as you said, as we move forward. But we feel like we can, we're, we're much more suited at the quarterback position to throw the football, and we feel like we're much, much more athletic at the offensive line position. Uh, and and pass protection is all about athleticism. Uh, to be a good pass protector, you have to be a good athlete. So we're, we're, we're morphing our personnel. We're forming our personnel to be much more multiple offensively, and that's what you do. But, uh, I, you know, so we'll get into those positions later. So we feel like we got the guys that can, can do some of those things much better and get the ball to the backs in different ways. Before we close the book on the running back position and our first chat here on Sports Talk with you, um, uh, there's going to be battles during fall camp, and I'm sure a lot of the running backs you named are going to be all trying to impress you even more to move up uh, in your depth chart as far as running backs go. So I think that is something really interesting to note for fall camp. With the talented group you have, uh, you could have uh, some guys that right now are a little farther down the depth chart that could work their way into a much more prominent role. Yeah, you know, guys, like I said, like Ronnie Awat, that our fans really haven't got to see healthy and performing for a couple of years here. He's the guy that could show up and, and, and run some people over and run by some people. Uh, but we all know what Dion has the potential to do. Everybody's so excited about him. And, and uh, so there's so many guys that could step up. Josh Fields I'm a huge fan of. The nice thing about these guys, Cap, is that they're great kids and they're not going to be selfish. And uh, that's the that's what's going to allow them to have success because if any of them get selfish, then none of them will have success, you know. And so, I think they're all kind of built that they're not selfish kids. They know that team comes first, and and uh, and that's how you really build your character as a person. And that's what football teaches you. So, looking forward to watching these guys uh, grow as people and and as football players. Hey, we're looking forward to uh, tomorrow. We get to do this again at 5 o'clock. Great start to the conversation today, Coach. We appreciate it. And uh, as always, thanks for joining us on Sports Talk. Yeah, I appreciate it a bunch. Good talking to you guys. Yep, see ya. Head, head coach Dana Dimmel, the UTEP Miners. We got running backs done. We'll find out what position tomorrow holds. But before we do that, let's go to Adrian and get another bottom of the hour Sports Center update. Start of hour number three here on Sports Talk as we continue now with what I think is going to be one of my favorite parts of today's show. And it's not just because, um, you know, baseball card collecting has been a hobby of mine since I was a kid, but there's something magical about the 1952 top series and that's one of the reasons uh, i wanted to bring on our next guest he's uh, tom zappala and tom along with his wife ellen uh, co-wrote a book called baseball and bubblegum the 1952 tops collection which you can buy on amazon.com and tom joins us uh, here to uh, start our six o'clock hour on the program hey we appreciate you coming on tom and uh, congratulations on the book which i know has been a big big hit Hit for those that uh, either remember the 52 top series or just love uh, reminiscing about old baseball cards. Well, Steve, thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's really, uh, we're very pleasantly surprised uh, with the response. Uh, the book has been out about two and a half weeks and uh, it is really caught on fire. We're very, very, very pleased. So, now, so far, so good. Was this a project that you had been talking about for a while? Yeah, actually it was. You know, we've done, this is the sixth in a series of books that we have done over the last probably 12 years. And 
we have really, really tossed around the idea of the 52 Tops collection because, well, there's, there's so many reasons. Uh, prior to this, we were spending time on a lot of the real vintage, uh, you know, uh, series and collections like the T206 collection, Cracker Jack. But a lot of people had been really uh, asking us, you guys have to do a book on the 52 Tops collection. So we thought the timing was right, uh, and, uh, you know, we, uh, we, we decided to, to dive in uh, along with uh, our partner out on the West Coast, Joe Orlando, president of PSA. Joe uh, was a big, big, big part of the project. And also uh, John Mallory. Uh, John Mallory is a, a, a sportscaster, sports writer up here in the Boston area. Uh, John uh, came on board and helped us with the book. So we're really, really pleased with the, uh, uh, the final product. Let's put it that way. I don't blame you. And again, I said it when we brought you on the program, Tom. There's something just special about these 1952 Topps cards. Not just because they're worth a fortune if you find them in great condition, but because they were made in six different series. It does have the iconic first Topps cards of Willie Mays and, and Mickey Mantle and so many others because they were rookies that 51 season. But also, um, there was just something special about these, wasn't there? Tops went all out on these 52 cards. Well, you know what it was? I'll tell you what. See, we look at this series, and it really is. This, this is the first series of the modern card era. That's the way I look at it. Uh, simply because it was a time... Uh, it, it, Tops, it was, I call it the perfect storm. Uh, prior to this series, a Bowman was the, 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 the big card maker. And the Bowman cards were very nice, but they were smaller cards. Uh, the 51 Bowman set, if you look at it, I mean, the cards are, are pretty small. So Tops really decided to jump in, and it couldn't have come at a better time because, you know, the Korean War. Uh, was just ending. World War II was over. Uh, there was integration in baseball. Uh, just a lot of things happened at the right time. The economy during the 50s was starting to, to, to really boom. And uh, it, was a, it was just a fun time. So uh, the Topps people, obviously with the help of Cy Berger, Cy uh, really designed the series. And the cars are made bigger. They're beautifully uh, the, the colors just jump out at you, and it was it was really uh, the golden era of baseball. You had you know you had Mickey, you had Willie Mays, you had Yogi Berra, you had uh, Roy Campanella. You know it, the, the the list goes on and on and on. So yeah, it was just perfect timing for a perfect set, and without a doubt, uh, you know it, neck and neck with the T two hundred six set, the famous Honus Wagner set. But that was back in 1909, 1910. These two sets are at the top of the mountain. Absolutely right. And and not only that, this was really Top's first venture in to do something like this, right? They Correct. experimented prior to, but never came up with anything close to what they started doing in '52. Correct. Uh, you know, they as I said, uh, uh, all, all of the credit goes to Cy Berger. He came up with the, you know 407 cards, but. It was it was intriguing the way he did it, why he did it, and uh, it, it just piqued our interest. Uh, one of the things that really, I mean, what what I like to do, I'm I'm a baseball historian, as is Ellen, and we really dove into not just you know baseball cards. They have the professional stats on the back of the cards, which is nice, but you know the way we decide to design this book is we, we really delved into the lives of the players. So we have narratives on every player, uh, whether it, you know, because they came from so many different walks of life. Many of them, not many of them, most of them worked jobs in the, in the off season because, you know, at that time they weren't making great amount, great, great amounts of money. And, you know, some of them were war heroes. So everything just, just came together, but the set itself, unequivocally, uh, it is it is the greatest set in in, in the modern era, post war. 
We're talking right now with uh, Tom Zappala, again, co-author of the book Baseball and Bubblegum, the 1952 Tops Collection, uh, which you can find at, at Amazon.com and check that out. And, and, and Tom, you've written other books before, but uh, and, and including a book on baseball bats that um, are, are some of the most uh, valuable sought-after bats. You've done autographs. You mentioned the T206 cards. But again, um, you know the 52s, which I'll ask you, since you've probably been in the hobby for years and years, I've been doing this for a long time. When did the 1952 Topps cards become the sought-after set and cards that they are today as well, opposed that's, to that's just a another great baseball question. Card? That's a great question because in 52 they were popular. In 53 they were popular. But as time went on, like all collections, uh, their popularity waned. And quite frankly, by 1960... Uh, uh, I know you know the story. Uh, they couldn't give them away. Uh, they had boxes and boxes of them left, and uh, they wound up, uh, Cy Berger wound up renting a barge, and I believe it was the East River, uh, uh, and dumped cases of them into the river. So they were popular at the very beginning, and then they waned in popularity. But then I think that they really, really exploded um, within the last, I would say the last seven or eight years, I, you know, with the explosion of the hobby, uh, especially the vintage cards, uh, you know, everything just, just exploded. And of course, the mantle card, the 52 mantle really, really, uh, brought the entire set to the forefront because of the value of that card. I mean, that card, uh, in, in, a, in a high grade, sold for $2.8 million. So it's, you know, obviously that'll get your attention, just like the Wagner card got mm -hmm. the attention of collectors uh, with the T206 set. Now, Tom, I remember in the mid-'80s, the 52 Tops cards were still then the industry standard for modern sports cards. So Correct. did the... Did did the the set itself and the and the type of cards really start to evolve in the seventies? Was it the early eighties? When 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 all of a sudden people realized, hey, I might have some of these old cards from ask my my grandfather. Well, you know, you know, and, you 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 everybody knows the story. My mother threw them out. Uh, so to, what happened was it really happened prior to what we call the junk wax era, and you know what that is. That's the uh, late 80s, early 90s, when they started overproducing. Uh, just prior to that, in the 70s, uh, I think that's when, when people really began to realize that, hey, you know, these cards, these cards are really worth some money. And I think, I think that's when it really happened. And people, you know, I mean, people really started collecting them and thought that they were sitting on a gold mine. However... Uh, and they were. I mean, the cards are valuable and were valuable. But I think the other thing is that once the Internet uh, came out, uh, you know, the Ebays and Google and all of that, it kind of corrected the hobby again, Steve, because now, I mean, people didn't know how many mantle cards there were out there because there was no Internet. So it was all by word of mouth. It was, you know, that's how people, you know, real found out how many how many cards there were out there. I think once the internet and eBay came out, it, it, the market really corrected itself, and people knew how many uh, uh, mantle cards there were out there, how many, you know, whatever. And I think that was the beginning of the of the, of the collectors really coming in, evaluating, and and and. Uh, you know, making their purchases. But prior to that, I mean, again, prior to that, uh, they were valuable, but uh, people just didn't know how many were out there. Well, I know Joe Orlando from PSA wrote uh, the forward to the book, and uh, all of the cards in the book are PSA-graded mm -hmm. examples. And, and obviously... That had to be a game changer for the industry because, uh, really, all the way through the 90s, uh, maybe the mid-90s, I'll say, people collected cards in high grades, but they didn't have a, a professional grader like they do now. Correct, and that's, that's really, really important. Uh, this particular series that we use for the book uh, is, I would say, in the top three greatest, uh, 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 highest-grade 
sets in the world, probably one or two. And it was loaned to us, actually, by uh, John Branca, who was a nephew of Ralph Branca. Uh, John loaned us uh, the collection, and we used his entire set, which are all high-grade cards. But, yeah, you're exactly right. I think part, I think part of, of what kind of righted the ship was that the third-party grading companies, PSA and a couple of the other ones, but PSA is the largest. PSA basically came aboard, looked at cards. You know, you could, you could have a, a, a Warren Spawn card in your hand if it's got creases on it uh, and it's not graded or it's got the torn corners. Obviously, the value of the card is not going to be worth as much as a high-grade card. PSA came in and... They are the ones that really uh, evaluate the card, their graders, and they grade the card from 1 to 10. So a ungraded card, as a matter of fact, what, what basically a PSA-graded card will add about 35% to the, to the value of whatever card it is if it were ungraded. So, yeah, the grading process is very important, and obviously if you're going to make a purchase, that it, and you can afford it, uh, you know, buy as a, a higher grade card as possible. You're better off buying, if you're a collector and you're not trying to collect an entire set, you're probably better off, it's, instead of buying, you know, 10 cards that are graded to two or a three, as an investor, you may want to buy one card that's graded an eight or a nine. Uh, that's one side of the coin. But of course, of course, if you're if you're if you're just a collector and you really love it, then go for it. Collect as many as you can. The name of the book: Baseball and Bubblegum, the 1952 Topps Collection. As we continue here on Sports Talk, we're chatting with the author uh, Tom Zappala uh, again from the book, which you can find at uh, Amazon.com and and enjoy uh, this. Which, by the way, the book is is terrific. You guys put a lot into it, and I know a lot of your books are all done the same way, coffee table style, hardcover. Uh, the the quality of the book is terrific, but you also put a lot into each player's description, didn't you? You wrote a little yeah, synopsis of each player, and, and yeah, it's nice. Yeah, absolutely, and that's that's really important to us. Uh, I think that really um, defines what our books are about, because, again, we're not just interested in the player's stats. We're interested in the player, and that was, that was one of the big things uh, in this book. We broke up the chapters into uh, Hall of Famers, uh, uncommons, uh, we call them uncommons, and uncommons were players that, you know, just did a little something above and beyond the call of duty. They weren't necessarily Hall of Famers, but their contributions to the game were, you know, unbelievable. And then we had the common players who, basically the commons are the foundation of, uh, you know, of, of, of every, every profession. You know, they're the, the people that, that are, the, are the foundations of whatever that profession is. But the thing that really piqued our interest is, you know, getting into the stories behind the players. For instance, uh, I don't know, uh, Frank Baumholtz. Never heard of him. But I considered him an uncommon player because here's a guy that I think he batted, had a lifetime batting average of about 290. But he's also a first-team All-American basketball player. Uh, average 14 or 15 points a game as a pro. And then, to boot, was a hero on a warship in, 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 uh, in World War II. Those are the types of stories that we like. Another guy, Gene Bearden, I was, I was so intrigued reading about this guy. He's a guy that served on the USS, uh, I think it was called the Helena. Uh, the guy got wounded. He wound up with a metal plate in his head. He had a metal hinge on his knee in constant pain, yet when he got out of the service in 1948, he was 20 and 7 uh, and led the, uh, the National League with a 2.43 earned run average. So those are the types of stories that we liked, you know, getting into the, into the nuts and bolts of the personal lives of the player as well as the professional. I know that uh, Tops now makes a ton of cards. They have uh, come out with uh, varieties of different cards, and mm-hmm. the 52s are always considered a classic. Do you think we'll ever see a modern set in the 
uh, card industry that ever is as sought after as the 52 top set? I honestly do, Steve, and uh, and I'm going to tell. Uh, based on what we're seeing right now, right at this snapshot in time uh, in the hobby, the answer to your question is I I say yes, because there is a entirely new group of young I call them the young guns collectors that have quite frankly a lot of disposable disposable cash. And they are paying unbelievable amounts of money for some of the stars today, the Mike Trouts, the uh, uh, the Mookie Betts, the uh, you know there's there's a zillion of them, uh, the Aaron Judges. As a matter of fact, recently a uh, a Mike Trout rookie card, it was a special special offering, uh, went for nine hundred thousand dollars. Now. I mean, think about it. Mike Trout doesn't even have a, a, a much of a track record yet, and yet they're spending this type of money on on that card. So, yeah, to answer your question, I really do think that uh, I think that there will be a set that is going to appeal to the 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 young collectors slash investors now, but that set may not be a you know, may not be here for another four, five, or six years. But yes, I do think that is going to happen because it's an entirely new generation of hobbyists that that have that have come in. And again, a lot of them have you know tremendous amounts of disposable cash. We just need to make sure that a handful of those cards from that set is dumped into the East River, right? Exactly. Well, we tried. As I said, I went to some scuba gear and I just couldn't get down there. I tried. <laughs> oh man, I could just imagine what's uh, what's there. Hopefully, something's still. Well, there. you know, we it's funny know. because uh, 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 we talk about Cy Berger, and Cy really was Mister Fifty Two Tops. But Cy's son Glenn, uh, he wrote uh, 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 a forward, an introduction to the book, and you know, chatting with Glenn, uh, you know, uh, my partner Rico, Rico Petroselli, uh, Red Sox Hall of Fame, is my partner uh, on another project. And we were having lunch with with Glenn, and the stories were just amazing. And you know, I, I was just imagining, you know, he had boxes and boxes of fifty two top sets that they just wound up, you know, disposing, getting rid of. But you know, he tells some great stories too about, you know, his dad. He could, you know, he remembered walking. You know, into the into the locker rooms of players or at the Topps factory, with his dad sitting there talking to Willie Mays and him sitting on Willie Mays's lap. You know, just some great, great stories uh, about that series and those players. Yeah, Cy did a great job. Cy Berger will always be remembered as Mr. Topps, in my opinion. You'll love the book, folks. Baseball and Bubblegum, the 1952 Tops Collection. It's available now, Amazon.com. Uh, and, and Tom, I'm curious, before we wrap things up with you, what's your next project that you're going to be working on now that this one's finished? Well, I, I honestly, uh, uh, we can't say because we, uh, we, signed, we signed some papers saying that we can't talk about it. But I will tell you this. Uh, it is, uh, it's probably two years out. And okay. uh, this one here is going to be a special one uh, because what we're doing, and I'm not going to mention the name, obviously I can't, but we're going to be doing a book on one person's entire collection. And it's going to be, I think it's going to be a great, fun project. I think people are going to really enjoy it. We're looking forward to it. That's awesome. In the meantime, appreciate you joining us and uh, love the stories. And let's get a chance to come back and visit again. Will do, Steve. Thanks for having me. Tom Zappala, folks, joining us here on Sports Talk as we continue. In the meantime, Charlie One standing by. He's got a traffic update. More of your phone calls coming up here on 600 ESPN El Paso.